This morning, I want to talk about two parables. And if possible, do what a preacher did for me many, many years ago and rescue them from somewhere in your past when they were used in a different way. I'm kind of a weirdo when it comes to really good sermons, even ones that are here nearly a decade ago. And in college, I heard a really good preacher expound on these two parables, and it changed how I view them. And I vowed one day that when I became a pastor, that I'd try to replicate what that preacher did, but in my own way. And so, Lord willing, I'm going to do just that this morning. And if I don't succeed, just don't tell me, okay? Um... Or just sit there really silently and stoically like you do every single week. Um, (laughs) But before I begin, before I get into these two parables, I first want to talk about a movie. Because I think, or at least I hope, will help set the stage for our conversation this morning. This movie opens one evening in 1969 in a remote farmhouse in Oklahoma. There's Outside the house is is a severe thunderstorm that's starting to ratchet up. There's menacing cloud cover, there's thunder, and there's lightning, and wind is beating against the house. The scene shifts inside to a father that is nonchalantly sipping his coffee when he sees the weatherman on his black and white TV issuing a tornado warning. And then he hears what I can only describe as growling outside the window as if a monster had just touched down and was approaching the house. The father immediately awakes his sleeping wife and his daughter and the family rushes to their underground storm cellar when a huge twister or a tornado hits the house and passes right over top of them and the father is whisked away by the winds. What a way to start a movie. It then jumps 27 years to the future when this little girl is now a storm scientist and she's trying to develop a tornado warning system. And she, along with her ex-husband and a team of storm chasers, for the rest of the movie, attempt to pursue and track down and try to drive into the storm a device to measure tornadoes. It's a whirlwind of a film. No pun intended. If you haven't guessed it, I'm talking about the spring 1960 or 1996 blockbuster movie, Twister. Has anyone ever seen this movie? I'm taking a huge risk when I talk about movies with you all. I still haven't gotten over the fact that some of you haven't seen Toy Story. I reference this film... Because at some point in my early adolescence, in my formative years, when I was really little, a little kid, I happened to watch a rerun of this movie, or at least clips of it. My mother would never let my brother and I watch these kinds of movies when I was that age, but for some reason, I happened to watch enough of Twister for it to permanently scar me. (laughs) And if you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. This movie petrified me. It wasn't a horror movie, but it sure felt like one to me. This movie that had dated, ridiculous CGI cows being flung across the road at one point scared the dickens out of me. I'd never seen violent tornadoes ripping through barns or drive-in theaters or cornfields, but these images lingered in my mind like a parasite. And so when I was growing up, I wasn't scared 
of the monsters lurking in my closet or the ones maybe hiding under my bed. No, 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 no. I knew those weren't real. The real monsters were outside my window whenever the winds picked up and the lightning flashed and the thunder announced its arrival. And they seemingly could appear whenever they wanted to. And so whenever there was a severe thunderstorm in the middle of the night, I'd sneak into my parents' bedroom while they were sleeping, and I'd curl up underneath a small bench that they had at the foot of their bed. That was my sanctuary in the storm, because somehow it was safer under there than in my own bed. I wasn't really that bright of a kid. But needless to say, this movie left an impression on me. If anything, it taught me vigilance. Because every time a major supercell rolls in, all day long I'm looking at the forecast. I'm trying to estimate, estimate its arrival, guessing its intensity. And when the storm hits, my eyes are glued to the TV, to the meteorologist talking, and my laptop is open with multiple radars. And I have my flashlight nearby. The only reason I took this job was because your parsonage had a basement. That parsonage is a bunker, man. It is made out of concrete. I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> My family makes fun of me, friends, for my preparedness and my attentiveness to severe weather. They tease me, and they laugh at me, and they mock me, argue that I go overboard sometimes. But I tell them, you never know. One of these days, it might just pay off. The next storm could be the one. Weather is unpredictable. Better to be safe than sorry. Always got to be prepared. Because like a thief in the night, you never know when it might hit. I say all of this to say, because how I felt, or perhaps I still feel, about thunderstorms and tornadoes, all because of a single movie that I happened to watch a part of as a kid. That's how some of you talk about the end times. And it influences how you think and how you view and how you talk about the last days, especially when the storms of time become seemingly turbulent. And I think it's because that's likely how you and I were initially introduced to the end times a long time ago. Some of us, myself included, were scared straight a long time ago about the second coming of Christ, probably by a passionate preacher looking for a high turnout at his altar call, or maybe by a religious author or a filmmaker believing that fear is the most effective tool for evangelism. And like me with Twister, with a movie that was made to sell movie tickets and not necessarily be the most scientifically accurate in its portrayal of tornadoes, nor necessarily teach, let alone prepare anyone about being ready for severe weather, it was entertainment, it wasn't a PSA. We have let certain people's interpretations and fantasies and honestly pure guesses about the end times dictate how we think about it. We've let the likes of Left Behind live rent-free in our minds, polluting and tainting our imaginations of the end times. 
And like a Hollywood movie that's engineered and designed to prick our brains, I believe this is the intention and the outcome of most, if not everything, we've been told about the end times. You following me? And the more I talk about good, with good Christian people and I do my own investigation into these admittedly tricky passages in Scripture about the end of days, the more I'm convinced that the way we've been presented the narrative of the end times doesn't reflect how Jesus or the rest of the authors of Scripture meant for us to read these passages, including the two parables I want to talk about this morning. Because the way we've been conditioned to approach the end times has no, it does nothing but feed our already overactive imaginations. They stoke any pre-existing fears we might have. They accentuate the divergence in opinions and predicting these unpredictable events. And they leave us only more terrified. And fear can get people to do and say crazy things. I can remember 20 years ago, people were approaching my dear old pastor and point blank asking him if microchips that were supposedly being developed and put in people's foreheads and wrists were the mark of the beast. That poor pastor. Three years ago, people were saying that about the COVID vaccines. Funny how things change. Over the years, I've heard that the Antichrist is either sometimes a Democrat or sometimes a Republican. I guess it just depends on who you ask or who's in the Oval Office. Pastor Taylor, this shortage of eggs, the shortage of toilet paper, these high gas prices, it's a sign of the times that the famines Jesus talked about are here. These are the birth pains. The end is nigh. And every time I hear this stuff, I hear the same fear that I had from watching Twister every time I thought the forecast looked grim. No confidence, only despair. No security, only panic. Very rarely do I hear someone talk about the end times with any sort of hope in their voice. Only dread. That's what's always bugged me about eschatology or the study of the last things and why I dislike talking about it. But people are so fascinated about it and eager to talk about it, yet they're always so depressing, doom and gloom. And I don't think that's how we were supposed to talk about it. And so believe it or not, the two parables that I want to talk about this morning are not to teach us only vigilance. I want to rescue them. And restore them. Because they're here to teach us hope. They're here to give us confidence. I was never taught confidence from anyone that talked about the end times. I was taught only vigilance. Look out for this. Avoid that. Be weary of this. Be suspicious of that. But the very odd thing was that the same culture that ingrained in me vigilance undermined my confidence. Are you ready? Are you sure? Are you sure? Double check. Are you sure? You see what I mean? Always looking, never ready. As I was saying years ago, a preacher I was listening to said, to be ready in these parables is not only anticipating something, 
It is to do so with confidence. And it is to be engaged in the thing you're looking forward to. So as I see it, I think there's a gap between those that are full of anticipation and eagerness about this subject matter, yet they lack being fully engaged. And there are those who try to distance themselves from the fear and the panic, and as a result, become completely disinterested in the return of Christ altogether. Brian Bunt, a theologian, writes, We live in a strange paradox of time. At the same time that the Christian church has dropped its apocalyptic themes and no longer talks about second comings or the return of Christ because they consider them too controversial of a subject. We don't all agree, and so we just say nothing. At the same time, he says, the world has picked up the theme, and they're making movies, and they're writing language that speaks about the end of time, the annihilation of the human race, and the meaninglessness of our existence. What better time than now for the church to step forward and say, we have a better message, a message of hope and confidence and optimism that keeps us fully engaged. So Matthew 25, there are two parables that speak about being fully engaged. We just read them a moment ago. The parable of the bridesmaids and the parable of the talents. They go together. They're not two distinct parables. Usually the second one is read and preached by itself, but that's not how Matthew wants us to read them because they're interrelated. Both speak about people waiting for the return of someone. And the first one, it's the bridegroom. And the second one, it's the master who goes on a long journey. Both of them have characters with something to manage. And the first one, it's oil and a lamp. And the second one, it's talents. Both of them have the return of the one they expect. Either it's the groom or it's the master. Both have a day of reckoning when the master settles accounts or he opens the door and they go into the banquet and both of them have a separation. There are people who make it and people who don't. For some reason, maybe you're like me and by default, when we read these stories, we always read it from the perspective of the ones that don't make it. I don't know why, but my heart always resonates with the five foolish bridesmaids or the third one who buried his talent because there's a voice in the pit of my stomach saying, be careful because otherwise you won't be the one who makes it. It's almost like I've been conditioned to do that. Can I retell these stories really quickly? And as I do, I want you to do your best to see yourself as one of the wise bridesmaids and not one of the five foolish ones. And instead of seeing yourself as the third servant who buried his talent, see yourself as the first two who had their talents multiplied. Can we try to do that this morning? In the first parable, Jesus employs images of a Jewish wedding. In an ancient Jewish society, traditionally, the marriages of young couples were prearranged by families in advance. And not long after their betrothal, the young man and the young woman would enter into this formal prenuptial agreement or a covenant together. 
However, they were not officially married. By, by all intents and purposes, they were, but that had to wait until a formal ceremony, usually at the groom's house at a later date, where the two were officially united in matrimony. But for an extended period of time, the couple lived separately from one another, usually the bride at her father's house and the young man preparing a place for the couple to live after the ceremony. It was after this period of waiting that the groom would then come to retrieve his brides and escort her along with her bridesmaids to the ceremony. The groom would leave the party at his house and journey through the village to collect his bride. And then the groom would lead her through the village on an animal like a parade, taking the longest route possible through all the streets so that the whole town could see and cheer them on as they passed because this was a communal affair. But the question is, how long will the groom wait to do this? This is the mystery of the parable, because Matthew doesn't tell us, because we don't know. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years. But this is where we find ourselves in Jesus' story, waiting for the groom to appear to retrieve his bride. Because someday, Jesus says, the groom is going to show up. It could be now, it could be years from now could even be in the middle of the night. And when he does, there's going to be a party. So how foolish would it be if someone were to miss the groom's highly anticipated arrival and the subsequent banquet just because the groom decided to come like a thief in the night? The only safeguard against burglars is to be constantly watching. But in the parable of the bridesmaids, both groups of bridesmaids fail and fall asleep while waiting for the delayed bridegroom. Isn't that interesting? The fact that they're not faulted or for falling asleep indicates that watching has nothing to do with being alert to the signs of the coming of the bridegroom. All the bride, bridesmaids are surprised at the lateness of the hour. It seems to suggest that being ready has nothing to do with intelligence or foresight and guessing the right day on the calendar the groom's coming back. That's not what ready means. It means something else because suddenly at midnight, the most unlikely of hours for the joyous celebration to begin, someone gets up and says, the groom is coming, get ready. And Jesus says it is the wise ones who were the ones who were prepared for the hour when the groom returned. It's not that they were the only ones who heard the announcement. That's not wisdom. Both the wise and the foolish bridesmaids are sufficiently alerted by a cry. Wisdom must mean something else. Back in those days, all across the Mediterranean world, people relied on oil lamps to provide them with light at night. I have a picture on the screen of what they likely looked like. The technology involved was incredibly simple. It was just pottery dishes with a, a pricked spout that held a linen wick in which oil was then placed, usually olive oil or animal fat, that was poured in there as fuel. These oil lamps were crude but very effective, but they didn't emit a large amount of light. They weren't for folks to see where they were going, so it wasn't really a flashlight they were used so that you could see them. Scholar Kenneth Bailey writes, Women in the Middle East, young and old, always carry lamps. 
their reputation, and in some cases, their personal safety depends on the lamps. For young unmarried women to move around in the dark without carrying lamps is unthinkable. What, what, what might they be doing in the dark and with whom? And with the lamp, no one could harass them unseen. But Bailey makes this observation that when women still to this day walk with their lamps at night, they almost never put their lamps close to the ground so that they can see where they were going. Instead, they carried their lamps up near their face so that you can see them. Wisdom in this parable is coming to the groom at a time with integrity and openness so that the groom knows you. Wisdom in this parable is not knowing the groom. Wisdom is living in the light of integrity so that the groom knows you. I heard that, and it changed the entire parable. So the way to get into the kingdom in this parable is not a one-time decision of asking Jesus into your heart. That's not what saves someone in this parable. That might be the case in some other parables, but in this parable, preparedness and the ability to get into the kingdom, the ability to get through the door is wisely having enough oil for your lamp so that the moment the groom appears, whenever that is, your face is illuminated and visible for the groom to see you and welcome you in to the marriage feast. Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world, like a city on the hill or a lamp on a stand. And in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see you, including perhaps the bridegroom himself, the Son of Man, who we know is on the way. The things we do now in the middle of this prolonged nightfall illuminates ourselves for our beloved to see us when he comes. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Not simply as a beacon to attract others to maybe come to church someday, but to be a light for when our beloved, not our prosecutor, but our beloved one day shows up. Am I the only one that grew up imagining that all of life was a trial? Culminating in a courtroom in heaven where a judge, God the Father, was seated on a throne, wielding a large gavel, ready to sentence me to eternal punishment. But directly to my side is my defense attorney, Jesus Christ, who was going to stand up for me. Am I the only one who had images of that stamped into my subconscious? Not here. The kingdom is not a courtroom. The kingdom is a wedding. The coming of the kingdom of God here is not a trial that ends in a courtroom. It's a long altar that ends, or it's a long aisle that ends at an altar with the one you love. It's a wedding. I think we've been sold an inferior image of what we've been told to look forward to. But God is not someone who is going to prosecute you. He's not trying to impress, you're not trying to impress him or maybe hoping someday that you'll be good enough. God is your beloved and you are God's beloved. Friends, I fear that we have a shallow understanding of the love of God. 
We've cheapened it to a God showing us kindness or more like pity by sparing us from eternal flames. And as a result, our response in return is us playing nice with God as some sort of appeasement or an installment plan for fire insurance premiums based solely on one verse from John 3. But the entire Bible speaks of God's love for his people that goes far deeper than that. It speaks of a God that's longing for union and intimacy with his people. Have you ever noticed that in the Old Testament, the three main metaphors for God, one of a father, one of a husband, and one of a king, the most prominent one is not a king. It's a husband. Has anyone ever told you that the laws in the Old Testament were not rules for rules' sake? They were not written because God loves rules. No, they were originally vows that one person says to another when they're brought together in union. So to sin is not simply to transgress a known law of God. To sin is to break the covenant with the one you love. That's why all those boring prophets that you neglect to read see Israel's relationship with God as a marriage, and they frequently compare idolatry to adultery. The worship of idols in the Old Testament wasn't a sin. It was an affair. It's a violation of one's vows. And that's why when you read stories of God unleashing his fury on his people, it's not God throwing a tenter tantrum like an unruly toddler. It's God expressing his heartbrokenness that his beloved would choose another lover. And so when we fast forward to the New Testament, have you noticed that this predominant metaphor of the church is that of a bride awaiting and preparing herself for the union with her groom, her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Not us, friends. This is why John sees and hears in his revelation at the end of time a wedding ceremony. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. All of scripture, it begins at a wedding and it ends at a wedding and there's a wedding smack dab in the middle of it at a wedding feast in Cana. All of this to say, to understand the kingdom is to picture it as a wedding. God has not abandoned his beloved and he's on the way to be fully united with his beloved because one day the trumpets will shout, sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine and wonderful day my beloved one bringing my savior Jesus is mine. Henry Nouwen writes, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. Becoming the beloved is a great spiritual journey we have to make. Becoming the beloved means letting the truth of our belovedness become enfleshed in everything that we think, say, and do. It entails the long and painful process of appropriation or better incarnation. 
As long as being the beloved is nothing more than a beautiful thought or a lofty idea that hangs above our life to keep us from being depressed, nothing really changes. What is required is to become the beloved in the commonplaces of our daily existence and by and by to close the gap that exists between what I know myself to be and the countless specific realities of everyday life. Becoming the beloved is pulling the truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am. So this brings us to the next parable, and I'll be really quick. Perhaps no other parable that Jesus says, other than the parable of the parable of the talents, has been more mishandled because they've divorced it from its apocalyptic context. It's why it's so important to read this parable with the previous one. You're likely familiar with the story. Jesus says to be ready is to be like one of the servants when the master calls them in and divvies up his wealth among them before leaving on a journey. Our translation this morning didn't set it, but a talent was silver worth a large sum of money. It wasn't a spiritual gift. You might have been told that before, but a single talent was just money, and it was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. An average unskilled worker made one denarius a day. So as you can imagine, we're talking about a large sum of money in this master's bank account. But the master decides to liquidate his vast assets among his servants, which is a tremendous honor and a sign of trust. And to one, he gives five talents, or in other words, 15 times that guy's annual salary. He gives to another one two talents, or six times that normal guy's annual salary. And the last one, the third one, he gives one single talent or three times his annual salary. That's a lot of money, and these guys have hit the jackpot. But it wasn't luck that these guys inherited this money because Jesus says it was by design. Because the master called them in and gave to them in proportion to their ability. The master has assessed the skills and abilities of each of the servants and gives to them accordingly. He isn't simply just doling it out willy-nilly because we'll see that he had expectations for these finances, although we're never told what his expectations are. Matthew doesn't answer the question, what's the master looking for when he returns? Matthew never tells us, but Luke does. Luke tells the same story, and Luke says, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king. And before he left, he called everyone together, his servants, and divided among him his money, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. Or better translated, do business with this money while I'm gone. Fully occupy yourself with this money in my absence. Why? Because the day is coming when the king's going to return to his kingdom, and he's going to want to see if you're fully occupying yourself with the things that interest the king. I was always told that this parable was about figuring out my spiritual gifts so that I could become the best possible Christian that I could be. God had given me talents, and it was my responsibility to foster them so that I can become the best employee for God. I needed to develop myself to become the best version of myself so I could be useful to God. But I don't think that's what this parable is saying at all. This parable is saying, take whatever God has given you, whether that's relationships or opportunities or gifts, advancements, experiences, finances, 
resources, time, whatever it is, and invest them into the things that the king is investing in. And this requires, I think, having an intimate knowledge of the king. You can't know what the king is interested in without a deep knowledge of the king. And so I think the two wise servants appear to know the king. They, have a, they know the king's heart, and they have the king's interests in mind and not their own, and they put the money to use not for their own personal profit, not to line their own pockets, but instead to present a love offering back to the master who initially was so gracious and trusting when they see him again. They love the master, unlike the third servant who buried his talent who seems to be really only interested in himself. I have to wonder if this third servant really knew the master at all. Or maybe he misunderstood the assignment from the master as a curse instead of an invitation for partnership. Because the first two servants were motivated not by the prospect of gaining more, not by adding another jewel to their crowns, but simply by love for their beloved and being in fellowship with him. They made decisions and choices that brought them closer to the king. They did not ask, how am I going to get a gain out of this deal? How do I benefit from this? How do I receive more favor and blessings? No. They instead asked, how can I serve my beloved? What would my beloved be pleased with? And we see that the reward is their master smiling and showering them with praise and saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's celebrate together. Vigilance, then, is not a passive waiting and watching, but I think it consists of an active, responsible service. When Christ returns, he will not ask, did you get the date right? He will ask, what have you been doing? Perhaps we've become distracted by the noise concerning the future and maybe waiting for Jesus is far less complicated than we, or even tedious than we made it to be, friends. 